if you have not been with us, we are in, we've been in a series in Colossians, and if you want to open up your Bibles to, uh, pay, it's around page 806, chapter 3 of Colossians. Uh, if you're at home watching, you can do the same thing. Uh, I don't know what page it is on your Bible, though. Um, and let me pray before we get into this. Father God, we thank you uh, for good worship. We thank you that you are in this room, that you are here, that you are present. It's good to be in your presence. Father, I pray that you would give us an image right now of us all kneeling before your throne in this great throne room at, the, at your feet. You are a good, good Father. And you are a Father. You're a loving Father. You are our King. And you are our Savior. And you are so much more. You are our peace. And I know at this time right now, Father, we don't always feel peace. But at least we know that at the core of our relationship with You, there is peace between us. That You have reconciled us by what You did for us. Thank You for that. And I pray that that peace that we can obtain would settle on us. Like that snow that's going to come later today, just a big blanket of snow that it would settle on us, cool us off, and insulate us. We love you so much, and we just want to reflect you to each other and to the rest of the world around us better. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, um, as I said, we're in Colossians chapter 3. And uh, the NIV, at least in my Bible, I, it, it starts out with this title, Rules for Holy Living. Uh, I don't know what it says in these pew Bibles, but but I think it really should say qualities of true spirituality, and you'll probably know what I mean by that later. So Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18, and we're going to go through chapter 4, verse 1 today uh, in, in by piecemeal. So anyway, but you can follow along. <laughs> anyway, Paul's been, you know, let me recap a little bit. Paul's been attacking this idea of false religion. You, you know, the Gnostics, the antinomian thought, the, the ascetic, Jewish ascetic thoughts on how we attain salvation or, and how we become truly spiritual. He's attacking the idea, uh, that you need some sort of special knowledge, right? That, or, or that you just need to live by the law in order to become truly right with God, to be saved and then be truly spiritual and all this kind of stuff. And he says that these ideas are self-indulgent and promote self-righteousness and that they are just a fleshly endeavor. He's been showing by comparison of positive and negative what a tr- the true spiritual life really looks like, showing that the truly spiritual person sets their sights on Christ alone. Right? For all things, that, that we operate out of the grace found in Christ, that everything comes out of this relationship with Jesus. Amen to that, right? Um, because of who, uh, of Jesus, we have this now reconciled, which I just prayed, this reconciled vertical relationship with God the Father, you know, and then that we have this new sort of relationship, this horizontal relationship with each other, this communal relationship with others around us. So he's, 
showing that this Gnostic or ascetic view, which we've defined in past sermons, and I won't go into that again, uh, puffs people up, right? You know, it's that it's impractical. It's actually very impractical for everyday relationships. Um, the person, in other words, living by this moral law or moral code to become righteous, you know, uh, becomes very judgmental and sort of prideful towards others. And then the person thinking that he or she can do anything they want in the body without consequence or actually they only hurt, actually hurt themselves and the community, other, other people around them. So we see Paul's view of the spiritual life focused solely on Christ and it becomes intensely practical in personal relationships. And I just want to say, it really does. If you really start to get into this stuff and, and churn it around in your heart, it really becomes intensely practical in personal relationships. And address it, And today he's going to address three relationships that we all have to deal with at some level, and that is the marital, the parental, and then the vocational. We've seen I think uh, over history, great societal change in the world due to the gospel. When Paul said back there in verse 11, if you remember, he said, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all, right? And then he said something similar in Galatians chapter 3. He said, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, just by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. That's it right? For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. In other words, you're part of the family, right? You're part of the spiritual family and heirs according to the promise. And so he says this stuff in his writings all you know, over and over again in various places. And what we find and what we've been hearing is that the gospel is the great equalizer, right? That no one person is more important in the eyes of God or in, in, the, in, in church life or, or the Christian life. The gospel has given women their rightful place as co-equal with men, and that has not always been the case as we know. It's given the slave even their rightful place as co-equal with their master, which at that time was, wow, that was a big thing to say, Right? And uh, and even children are included in this communal life, this community life, and they are seen as, and they are called to be participatory in it. Now, Paul is not asking that all societal norms be challenged or changed here, right? Um, he's focusing, he's simply focusing our hearts and minds on Jesus, right? And advocating for change where change needs to happen. Right? Change in how we interact with each other. You know, the Colossians lived in a society where issues like slavery can't be tackled all at once. But as Christians, right? But as Christians, slaves and masters are to obey their ultimate master, who is Jesus, which plays out in their relationships. And let me say this clearly, which ultimately undermined the whole institution of slavery. And I think that's a big point. We are all equal in Christ. That was a big thing. So what governs our relationships? So he begins with the marital relationship first. He says in verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, 
Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The S word, the other S word, right? There's two S words that are like people don't like and submission is one of them, right? You know, I've cringed at others who have preached on this passage at times because it, you know, it's not that their words were all wrong sometimes, but it, their attitudes were off, right? And, and maybe it's because I'm a little bit older than, than some of you that I've heard a lot more preaching on this 20 years ago and stuff, and, and it was a very different sermon in, in some places. You know, but for instance, if I don't believe that women are equal with men, if, if I stood up there and I had that, that they were as intelligent or, you know, sophisticated, gifted, creative, etc., then my preaching would come off as misogynistic, even if just in subtle ways, right? Um, but if I see myself as equal with my wife, you know, as Scripture teaches, then my, then my take on this passage is going to be out of a heart of grace and love and encouragement and respect and, and sort of a servant's heart towards her as her husband. The word submission has been used to subjugate. Let's be honest about that. It has over the history of the church. It's come out in subtle ways, you know, like, uh, you know, a look, a pat on the back, a, oh, don't you worry your pretty little head about it, sweetie, kind of a thing, right? You know, it's meant that their, their whole being, a woman's whole being, is in subjugation to the man. That's what it's, it's been said, not all the time in all churches, but some churches have, have preached that. You know, that husbandly love's been taken to mean the man's condescending care of the woman. You know, some use these verses to abuse. They really do. But let's think on what Paul's saying as he speaks into this highly patriarchal society. And you've got to understand that that's what he's speaking into. Where all privilege was to the man and all duty was to the woman. Right? In the Christian family, he's saying, in the Christian family, the gospel transforms relationships. As we focus on, G- on Jesus as our model, and he's been saying this the whole time. And so what we find is that in Christian marriage, it's a partnership. As we set our hearts and minds on Him, on Jesus, then the family, the most intimate of relationships we have, becomes the proving ground of true spirituality in people. Right? So let me remember this. I want to say this and I want want it to stick with you. What happens in the home validates what happens in the heart before God. I'm going to say that twice. What happens in the home validates what happens in the heart before God. Now, if you think about that statement really strongly, it's, you're going to be very convicted, especially after my last two weeks. I, it's, I was telling Greg, every time I preach on a sermon about marriage and things like that, my wife and I have tension, <laughs> and I have to apologize. And it's usually me that has to apologize. Um, but so it's very convicting. What happens in the home validates what happens in the heart before God. And I was sitting here worshiping and I'm thinking, yes, our earthly relationships, either they reflect how we're doing with Jesus or they hinder how we do with Jesus, right? Remember, Paul is writing in a world which devalued women, devalued children, and devalued slaves, Right? And these three groups 
We're expected only to obey and nothing else. And that's what he's writing into. And what he's calling for is a change in thinking towards these three groups in this passage. It's an uplifting in comparison to the surrounding culture, right? Christian marriage is where both people find encouragement, completeness, and joy in seeking Christ together, which is a radical idea in their context. I'm not sure we even know how radical that was. So he calls for repentance and he calls for change in how they view and treat each other coming from the heart and mind that is focused on Jesus as master in contrast to the rest of their culture. So the, the wife is misguided if she views herself as subservient to a man. That's a misguided thought. Allowing him to devalue her and beat her up verbally or physically or anything else. Which was, uh, l- let me say really qu- quickly, to, to women at that time, that was a hopeful change, right? And, and, and when you do the history research, you find out that women came to Christ in droves in the first century due to the fact that they were suddenly valued. But over time... Some people have preached a different message. Some women have been advised to stay in abusive relationships uh, or situations due to the idea of being submissive. I wouldn't agree with that. Every situation is different, requiring wise counsel, obviously. But in light of your identity in Christ, it may be more glorifying to God and a witness to an abusive spouse to separate, if not just for a time. And I've I've counseled people to do that. I've had people live in my house to be separate from their spouse when their spouse is being extremely abusive because their spouse needed the hammer to understand, I can't do this. I can't do this. Your value as a woman is because of Jesus, right? It's not contingent on any man or what he thinks of you, no matter what he says. God places value on you as a created, loved child that has been grafted into his family, adopted into his family. Jack Miller, the, pa- the pastor that wrote the Sonship materials, used to say to his wife, Rose Marie, and she, she shares this story, you act as if you're an orphan, but God is your father. <laughs> he was always just trying to get her to realize, God is your father. And women should rejoice in that. They should rejoice in that. They are valued and loved as whole persons in Christ, which no man can ever take away. Right? But I'm probably preaching to the choir in this. But viewing herself in that way, then submission to her husband is following the model of her Lord as he submitted himself to God the Father. Right? When that happens in a Christian family... It results in the elevation of the woman in the Christian home and it, an end to any abuse. A witness to the misogynistic culture that they were surrounded or that they swam in, right? The, is, the issue really isn't gender-focused, but how each of us orients ourselves to, to Jesus and how it plays out in our relationships. Secular interpretations of submission and love have to be thrown out the window because they just do not apply in the Christian home. 
We mark everything towards Jesus who submitted himself to God and loved the church by sacrifice for her. Elevating her status and elevating her place in life. Kim is not inferior to me any more than Jesus was inferior to God the Father and Christ loves his bride and loves her really well. Both the relationship of wife to husband and husband to wife are governed not by some societal norm, rather by Christ as our model who is all and is in all, right? He is in me just as much as he is in my wife. Now, in the greater context, he's already said to us in past verses that we have to react to each other with compassion and gentility and humility and kindness and patience, if you remember that. So I have no right, I have no right before God as a husband to subjugate or control or belittle or hold back or play down my wife. Now, whether we are talking about a wife's submission, if you want to put that word in there, or a husband's loving, uh, both of those are coming out of this new life in Christ and in contrast to the old self-practices of the past which this patriarchal society of first century Rome espoused. It's a very different view on marriage relationships. In Christ, there are no favorites. He's for a husband and wife in equal measure. And as husband, my first concern for my wife is that she is fulfilled in Jesus, that I'm giving her opportunity as much as it's in my power to find, find that, to realize it, to realize her calling in Jesus and, and, and to be complete. And that is fitting in the Lord. That's being loving husband. To push my wife towards Christ. So men, when you are looking for a mentor or, a disciple, or like a discipleship relationship with a guy, especially with an older married man, Look for the man whose wife is fulfilled, right? Look for the man who loves her, who builds her up, who listens to her advice, who seeks her wisdom and her counsel, who engages with her. Look for the man who submits to her in love. Since Ephesians 5.21, by the way, says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it's not just the wife submitting to the husband. It's the husband also submitting to the wife. The man on equal footing with his wife and has his wife's respect because you can't have respect without love. You can only have fear. Look for the man whose wife is willing, you know, willingly submits herself to him so, because she is fulfilled, because she's loved, because she's cared for, and growing to her full potential in a loving relationship with a Christ-like man. Look for that, that woman, that guy that does this. Avoid the man whose wife you never hear about or see, you know, who belittles his wife or makes jokes about women in derogatory ways, whose wife stares at the ground in group conversation and doesn't seem to have a, an input, and who's never, you know, who's never pushed his wife to blossom in her gifting and, his, and, and her ambitions, 
You know, although these men sort of may look really godly on the outside in a lot of their practices, you know, their relationship reflects their heart towards God. It really does. You'll learn nothing but the law from that guy. Now, we all in marriage go up and down and how we treat each other. We have bad times and good times. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an overall different view of the opposite gender, right? So now Paul moves into the parental relationship. And I I love these verses. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I say that to my kids all the time. No, I don't actually, but. But allow me to tell you a story. You may have heard this story, but I want to tell it to you anyway. It says, uh, there was a father that was passing by his son's room. And his son uh, had, he was surprised to find that his son had made his bed and everything was in order. But there was an envelope right on the, on the pillow. <laughs> and it said, Dad, on the envelope. So with shaking hands, he opened the envelope and he started to read the letter. And it said, Dear Dad, it's with great regret and sorrow that I write. I eloped with my new girlfriend because I wanted to avoid a scene with you and mom. Uh, I've been finding real passion with Stacy. She's so nice, but I knew you did not approve because of all of her piercings and tattoos and tight clothing and the fact that she's so much older than I. But it's not the only, only the passion, Dad. She's pregnant. And Stacy said we're going to be very happy together. She owns a trailer in the woods and has a stack of firewood for the whole winter. And we share a dream of having many more children. Stacy's opened my eyes to the fact that marijuana doesn't really hurt anybody. And we're going to be growing it for ourselves and trading it with other people who live nearby for cocaine and ecstasy. And in the meantime, we'll pray science will find a cure for AIDS so that Stacy can be, can be cured. She deserves that. Don't worry, Dad. I'm 15. And I know exactly how to take care of myself. Someday, I'm sure we'll be back to visit so you can meet all your grandchildren. Love your son, John, and his new wife, Stacy. And then it said, P.S. Dad, <laughs> none of the above is true. I'm, I'm over at Tommy's house. Sorry. I don't know why this gets to me. I just wanted to remind you that there are worse things in life than a, than a report card that's in my center desk drawer. I love you. Call me when it's safe to come home. It reminds me of my son Tanner. He would pull a joke like that. But the parent-child relationship is obviously difficult. We know that. I mean, it can be difficult. Sometimes it's not difficult, you know, depending on the kid, depending on the parent. But there's a verb change here in the Greek from submission, which only means sometimes, uh, like only sometimes means obedience, right, to the more explicit word for obedience. This is a different relationship. There's also a change of verbal voice from the middle, which implies the wife's submission is voluntary and not forced or not coerced, to an active imperative, which implies the child's unquestioning obedience, as he says, in everything, in all ways. So children aren't off the hook, right? Scripture involves and calls children into an intelligent and vibrant relationship with Jesus, and it doesn't allow them the wiggle room for excuses. We can't let, like children would let, uh, the surrounding culture become the arguing point for what they want to do. That's not how we operate as Christians. 
Our standard and our children's standard is Jesus, just like a mother or father's. So we call our kids to the carpet on those things, right? We're called to obedience in our family by Jesus, not by mom and dad, right? Unfortunately, sometimes parents uh, consider children to have little voice, right? Although they're intelligent, creative human beings with a lot to say. And parents should listen to their children. They should weigh a child's words carefully. That's for sure, listening to the thoughts of their heart. I remember when we first started this church, we had a church plant team. My son Aiden was old enough to contribute. He was a young kid, but man, he sat in all our meetings and he, and he had things to say about where we were going as a church. And it was very helpful. However, as dependent children, as dependent children, it is good to remember parents have walked these roads of life before you know a loving wise parent can see all the pitfalls well beforehand right but they are also not god they don't know everything they can't read the future they can be wrong and that's why both need to seek a balance in their relationship and a reliance on christ but the preference is uh, for final decision making to fall on the parent as long as the child is in their care. Although kids should be heard, you know, they they obey even if in disagreement, right? Showing their heart for Christ, knowing it's their parent who has been given the responsibility for their growth, their development, and their safety. It's not going to be forever, and they're going to probably be in the same situation someday themselves, right? However, this doesn't include obedience in sinful areas. Some of my friends' parents in high school would smoke pot with their kids. Um, And that's not an area a kid needs to be obedient in, right? If a parent's sexual ethic would allow their child to have sex outside of marriage, you you know, just with their boyfriend or girlfriend, that is not a place where the kid needs to obey. Jesus is the person that they ultimately obey, just like us, in the context of that, this relationship. And in doing so, they can actually be a witness to a fallen parent, right? Or an errant parent. Now, Paul also has something to say to the parents. And this is, every parent in here should memorize this verse. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. So although, uh, you know, the child-parent relationship is different from the marital relationship and the idea of obedience, the father's direction should come also out of this heart and mindset of Christ, right? This relationship should emulate the virtues that Paul has already espoused, right? Now, many people might have a hard time praying that that term our father right because it comes with uh, images of severity or neglect or abuse or the idea that you can never please dad well that that is not the father in heaven that you have right that's a very different uh, outlook and anytime you give the command to obey somebody you are setting up the potential for abuse aren't you if I say you've got to obey me, I'm setting up the potential to abuse you, right? Child abuse comes in many forms. 
We all know that most common is neglect, I guess. There's, there's emotional neglect when things aren't said that which need to be said or time's not spent with a child that needs to be spent. But if obedience is demanded without love, damage is done. If love is dependent on obedience, damage is done. If punishments are harsh, done out of anger and not love, damage is done. These are important, very practical things. And what's the result of all that? Well, a child who secretly or openly drifts into self-destructive behavior and away from the faith, right? Since it's viewed as having failed them because dad has not modeled it. Dad has not modeled it. You say church is important. Never show up. What do they care? If it's not important to you, it's not going to be important to them. Parents have a very palpable fear of their kids drifting away from the faith. At least Christian parents do, right? But to operate out of fear and not faith, the end result is sort of a hedge of law and a hedge of rules to control that child, which does nothing but harm and shelter them. It doesn't prepare them for life. And it drives them farther away from you and farther away from Jesus. There's got to be some risk in this relationship, right? So we entrust them to Christ. He, he knows best what's for them, right? A, a loved and encouraged, and encouraged child doesn't easily drift or secretly hate or doesn't you know, seek fulfillment elsewhere and is an obedient child, right? However, this is an issue of a person's heart. Remember that too. And we know that hearts are deceitful above all things. Scripture tells us that. Sometimes, no matter your best efforts, your kids are going to drift. It just depends on their personality type, usually. But where they run when they fall, like the prodigal son, depends on how you love them right now. My parents, who are sitting here today, did this really well with me. And I was, I was the one that drifted no matter what. <laughs> and and they, I was able to run back to them, right? And it, and it really it really gave me a great image of God the Father and His grace towards me. So we stop sheltering, we stop controlling, and we start really loving our children, and things go much better, usually. Paul may be directing these comments to fathers more than mothers here, since in a patriarchal society, more damage done by an unloving, distant, and harsh father than the mother, Right? However, I think it also applies to you moms in the room as well. In Christ, rather than the relationship being defined as the father having power over the child, it is actually defined as the father becoming the servant or having power under, lifting the child up. Just as Christ served and died for the church, right? So we follow our model. Now Paul continues to our third grouping, uh, vocational relationships. Um, Slaves, he says in verse 22, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you, and to win their favor, but with the sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. 
Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. And then verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, we have to clarify, obviously, that slavery, as seen in our recent history in America, isn't the same thing as we see in Scripture, although there are similarities, and, and, and the, but the worlds were very different. But I'd say God has always been moving his people away from that institution. Slavery in the first century existed, but it was not common. It became more common in um, the Roman Empire for reasons of commerce and for um, economic sustainability and things like that. But there were a number of ways that a person became a slave. They were uh, captured in war, or they were born to slave parents, or they were, or by purchase, like convicts could be sold to pay off uh, a debt or recover money. A debtor may be sold um, along with his family members to pay off a debt. A person might uh, also sell themselves into slavery to avoid going into poverty. And some slaves even had their own slaves. And some slaves filled very important, you know, sort of staff positions and they did business for their masters. Uh, they were entrusted with a great deal. The Ethiopian eunuch that you read about in the scripture was most likely a slave in another land doing a, uh, a business trip for his master. A high percentage of teachers and doctors and professionals were slaves at that time. So scripture acknowledges that slavery exists, existed then. And it speaks to our relationships in that context, but it does not condone slavery. You've got to understand that, right? It does not condone slavery. And once the gospel made clear what was true all along, that slaves are their master's equal, it slowly unraveled that institution. It really did. And in addition, it made a sort of a safe societal shift instead of this quick rebellion against slavery where where blood would be spilled and poverty would ensue, right? That was always the problem with changing societies. Once you make a change, you can't just, what are you going to do with people? You just throw them out to the dogs. Like they they can't make a way for themselves. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 6, we are slaves. Right? We are called slaves in Scripture, but we are bought with a price. And Jesus has uh, sort of a right to our allegiance as as our master. We've been brought from being slaves to sin to slaves to righteousness. Paul takes great pride in many passages in calling himself a slave to Jesus. Romans 1, Galatians 1, Philippians 1, Titus 1. He says this over and over again. Right? So although we acknowledge there were horrible atrocities meted out against slaves in New Testament times in occasions, we can more likely look at this passage as one of employment. In Indonesia, we had uh, Pembantus. They were house helpers. And I remember when I first moved to Bandung and we we, we were told we had to hire somebody because it was... We had to provide a job for somebody in the, in the neighborhood. So we got this young girl, and she was cleaning our house and cooking. And my neighbor came over, who was an Indonesian guy, and he says, how much do you pay for that mat? She's standing right there, and she can understand everything he says. And he used, he used the Dutch word for mat, like a mat on the ground. How, how much do you pay for that mat? 
And I'm like, Matt, They're like, what the heck? And it was my beginning of my education to understand their view of a Pimbantu was really more of a slave. And they would have them live in their house. They would never let them leave. They wouldn't let them have relationships. And they would feed them only the scraps and blah, 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 and all this stuff. Not everybody did it that way, but some, but some people did. So Kim and I decided... We're going to play double a wage. We're going to let them have all holidays off. We're going to play their, their travel expenses to go back home. We're going to pay all of their health care costs. We're going to give them the choice to live in our house or live at their, at their house and travel to our house. And, and we're going to pray for them and care for them well and all that stuff. And it was a very big witness that we considered them an employee and not a slave. And it was a very, very different way to do it. And if I had said, no, I'm not going to have a person doing that in my house, I would not have been providing for somebody in the neighborhood. And that would have been even worse. So these things are very complicated, but Christians are called to a different level, a different place. And Paul brings up the same argument that he does uh, with the other two relationships, uh, with the vocational relationship. And the question before us as employees or employers is who is it that we are ultimately serving as we work? Paul's convinced, obviously, that if we set our hearts and minds on Christ as employees, then we will see our work um, as a spiritual act of worship, so to speak, and it'll not matter if your boss is a jerk too much. (laughs) So the question is, what is our motivation to work well, right? Is that we want to please our boss or have a satisfying work relationship, which aren't bad goals, uh, or that we get as much final, financial gain as possible. Probably not a bad goal either. Or is it that we see our work as working for Jesus, no matter what we're doing? And concerning financial gain, Paul's reminding us of the promise, if we serve Christ well by working well, then there are both present and future blessings, right? And this last point is kind of important, since slaves weren't paid much, if at all, Right? So what, what reward are we really hoping for? What's our greatest uh, impetus here, right? Now, in talking about slavery and working for Jesus and future rewards, James Hal Cohn, and he's an important African-American theologian, has said that black spirituals celebrated visions of heavenly sort of reward to affirm what it means to be fully human in an earthly context where love, justice, and liberation were rarely realized, right? So I just want to read what he says. He says, from the gospel stories, the slaves knew about God's love and justice. They spoke of their heavenly home as the place where they'd finally and fully experienced these truths. Now, let me inject here. We should try to make that happen here at all costs. And I think that's what Paul is saying in this passage. But sometimes... In a society, it's hard to change those things. And it takes a long, lot of time, right? And he, he continues, he said, to, the mind, to, to mind the things above is to hope for an inheritance that reverses socioeconomic conditions on earth where many people are oppressed and denied humanity. Significantly, the spiritual songs of American slaves were mostly composed in the fields of hard labor rather than the churches of earnest worship. They express the real reason slaves continue to work well in spite of terrible treatment. 
They minded the one above in the confident hope that they that he realized their true value would one day give the and, and would one day give them back their humanity. In this limited but profound sense, they shared a rich koinonia with their Christian counterparts in ancient Colossa. Right? That's an amazing thing. So the master uh the master is also, we've got to remember, the master is also a slave to righteousness himself. When Paul is speaking to this, there were people probably in that room that owned slaves. And he's saying, you know, you were also bought with a price. His treat, and so his treatment of others is directly linked to his obedience to his own master. And if he's obeying Jesus, then his treatment of his slaves, or if you want to say employees, is going to be fair and good, honoring them as fellow and equal creatures of God, and eventually leading to their freedom and their care in their freedom. See, the, the gospel brings about equality to a community. Everyone has equal value in the eyes of Jesus. Anybody who interpreted the scriptures as we're allowed to have slaves is an idiot. I'm sorry. They are an idiot. They have not read the book. They've not gotten the spirit of it. There's a really good book, uh, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, and, 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 and by uh, Webb, I think it is. Really good book tedious read but good book and it describes uh, a lot of this stuff and and uh, take the time to read it if you want but um, but how are these relationships governed and by whom is the big question for us they're governed not by our situation out there right they're they're not, they're not governed by our feelings towards someone like the boss you can't stand it, they're not governed by societal norms or expectations on marriage and all that kind of stuff but out of a focus on Jesus as master. That's why marriages reflect God and the church. And that's why it's important, all these things that we address in there. So we love and we build others up. We listen and obey when we must in the relationships that we're called into. We treat others with respect and courtesy. We serve and care for others. We lead our children out of a heart for them to grow in Christ and to know Christ deeply. And we work as if it were, we were working for Jesus and not for somebody else. Imagine our witness to the world if our families and work relationships were marked by all of these virtues out of a focus on Jesus. Imagine how that would change everything. It becomes extremely practical. The gospel is extremely practical in how we interact and relate to one another in this world, in these different relationships. Let me pray for us. Father, some of these things are difficult to think about and talk about, and some of these things are uh, easily misunderstood or uh, words can easily be twisted. So I ask that you would guard from that. And I ask that you would give us uh, a deep understanding of how to do these things well and to love each other well and to love others well and to reflect your holiness and your calling to the world around us in ways that are extremely practical and that bring about repentance and knowledge of salvation to others. Father, break our hearts for your holiness. Break our hearts for each other and break our hearts for the world around us.
And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.